good morning. It is good to see you, and well, at least to see half of you from the nose up. Um, it's so wonderful to be back here at Christ Church Westchester, and um, I think this is my third time to be with you, and so it's always wonderful to be invited somewhere. It's a privilege to get invited to preach God's Word anywhere. It's uh, an extraordinary privilege to get invited back, and then it's an either act of extreme foolishness on the part of your pastor or, or just extraordinary kindness uh, to be inv invited back a third time, and I'm so delighted to be with you. I am thankful for what I see God doing here, and I just want to echo what uh, your pastor prayed for uh, in his pastoral prayer. Uh, I hope you have a sense of the remarkable stewardship that is yours to be situated in God's providence right here in Westchester uh, in the shadow of a major university. I was talking with one of your fellow members right before the service, and I only got a part of the story, but it was very clear from his own testimony that it was through a very healthy local church in a college town that God has done a, a work of calling and redirection in his own life and ministry. And so my prayer for you is that as you lean into the life of the body here at, at Christ, Church West, Christ Church Westchester, uh, that God would indeed use you to have a great impact for the kingdom at Westchester University and far beyond. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. So uh, there are a number of rules for guests, preachers, and speakers. At the top of those is don't go long. I struggle with that sometimes. Another one of those is don't get the name of the church wrong. So I'm so far so good. Uh, and another one, although I'm taking a little liberty here, I think it's a little less significant, is don't change the text that you sent months in advance. I'm breaking that one. Uh, so I know your, your bulletin uh, says that we're going to be in another part of God's Word, but I'm actually going to take you this morning to a familiar passage, the sixth chapter of Isaiah. And I trust it'll be for our good. I'll tell you about why I'm doing that in just a moment. I also want to just, again, personally thank your pastor, Raymond Johnson. Raymond's a dear friend, and I would echo everything he said. Um, Raymond's never really had a boss. <laughs> there are people who on paper are technically supposed to be his boss, but one of the joys of working with Raymond as a colleague was just seeing how God has blessed him with extraordinary gifts and above all with a heart for Christ for his word and for his people. And uh, so anytime I get to hang out with Raymond and Megan and their kids is a, is a gift. And I am particularly delighted that my son Charlie is here with me. Um, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, get, getting to travel with him is, is a gift I don't take for granted. Again, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, if you're there, say I got it. All right, that'll work. Um, why, why here? Well, I, I think one of the most important things in life is having the right perspective, seeing things for how they truly are. Um, and and it, from time to time, we need, in fact, more often than we may realize, we need to have our perspective corrected. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget traveling uh, out west. Now, I, I have most of my roots are here on the East Coast, a lot of family ties to southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, and I also have a lot of family in, in California. And so I've been accustomed to flying across the continent, going over uh, at a rather high altitude, in fact, uh, going over most of this country. And so for years, I was accustomed to it. There's a certain part in that itinerary, if you're going from BWI to LAX, or if you're going from you know, Philadelphia to San Diego, or wherever you may go be going, you're at some point going to fly over the Rockies. 
and, or the Grand Canyon or whatever it may be. And the pilot, if he's feeling generous, he might even interrupt and say, you know, everybody, if you look out the right side of the plane, you're going to see this hole in the ground. It's also known as the Grand Canyon. Or, or if you look over here, you'll see the Rocky Mountains. And you kind of take a break from whatever you're doing. You look out the window and you go, oh, that's nice, you know, good. There are the Rockies. There's some snow on them. Okay, when are we going to get to L.A.? When are we going to get to San Diego? But the first time that I was actually on the ground, feet on the ground in Denver, I was there for an event, and I get out of the rental, I get out of the airport, I get to the rental car a lot, I get in the rental car, and I start driving towards downtown Denver, and you can't miss them. They're just shooting out of the ground, like something out of Lord of the Rings, is this giant mountain. And not just one, but a whole mountain range, right? The Rockies. Now, it's the same mountain range. I'd seen it flying over it, more times than I remember. But when I was actually brought down to the proper perspective with my own feet on the dirt, so to speak, it was a thing of wonder. It, was, it put me in my place. It, it made me aware of how small I really am and how majestic these glorious peaks really are, in fact. And I want to suggest to you this morning that our perspective on who God is, particularly His holiness, is all the more powerful, all the more necessary, all the more important in correcting our own perspective and our own understanding, not only of who God is, but of who we are ourselves. So read with me if you will. I'll read it aloud, and then I'll pray, and we'll try to make uh, some application of this familiar passage, just the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. I want to break this up into three sections, three clear movements in this account that Isaiah gives us. We'll talk about a vision of the holiness of God, the problem with the holiness of God, and the solution in the holiness of God. So vision, problem, solution, if you're taking notes, okay? Well, what's the vision? And it's rather clear in its context, although you may not be familiar with some of the names or the references here, but Isaiah tells us something right here in the very beginning, that he has this vision, this extraordinary vision in the year in which King Uzziah died. Now, you might be tempted to just skip along and get right to the main event, so to speak, this extraordinary vision that Isaiah has, but don't miss the significance of this chronological marker. In God's perfect wisdom, His inerrant, inspired Word gives us this chronological reference for a reason. So you should, 
as a careful student of the Scriptures, you should ask, who in the world is King Uzziah? And why did Isaiah feel compelled to mark that here? Well, we know a little bit about King Uzziah. Uh, you can read about him in Second Chronicles 26. That's really where we find most of the biographical material on, on Uzziah. But he was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he ruled and reigned from Jerusalem, from the city of David. And his father, uh, Amaziah, had been a wicked king. So wicked, in fact, that when he had conquered one of Judah's enemies, the Edomites, he had brought their idols back to Jerusalem, and he had instituted idolatry. You know, so the, the king of Judah, uh, David's heir, the, the, the king of the people of God, in fact, is, is sanctioning idolatry in the, in the land. And God judges the, that king, and, and he's killed. He's no more. And at 16, year old, 16 years old, the crown prince... Uzziah is given the throne, 16 years old. And the Scripture tells us that he ruled for 52 years and did what was right in the sight of the Lord. In contrast with his father, he was generally a faithful king, a righteous king, a good king. Now, 52 years is a long time. I mean, we are all, even after the death of Prince Philip, I mean, I realize we're here in the shadow of Philadelphia, and we don't do well with monarchies in this place, but even us, we have to admit a fascination with long-standing monarchies. We will all pause, I'm sure, when Queen Elizabeth II goes to be with the Lord, and we will wonder at the longevity of her rule, even though we're glad for July 4th, 1776. There's something extraordinary about that kind of longevity, 52 years in the case of King Uzziah. But there's also more to the story of King Uzziah. You see, King Uzziah, as I said, the text tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 that he was a faithful king, that he did do what was right in the sight of the Lord. But at the very end of his life, the chronicler gives us an account of failure, of unfaithfulness, where perhaps motivated by pride, perhaps motivated by arrogance. We don't know exactly. King Uzziah breaches into the temple, and he goes to the altar of incense where only the sons of Aaron, the priests, were to offer incense to the Lord. This is just on the other side of the veil outside of the Holy of Holies. And Uzziah presumes upon the Lord, and he offers incense himself. And the priest, you can almost picture it the way the story is told in 2 Chronicles 26. You can picture the priests protesting, saying, no, don't do this. This is not right. This is contrary to the law of God. This will bring judgment. Don't do it, King Uzziah. And he just disregards their protest, and he does it anyway. And right there, God judges him. The text tells us that he is, in a moment, he is afflicted by leprosy and therefore rendered unclean. And he has to live outside of the, uh, apart from the people until he dies of leprosy. And he goes and he's buried with his fathers. So when Isaiah tells us that this is the year in which King Uzziah dies, there's a lot going on here. For one, just think of the little bit of biographical material I just gave you on King Uzziah. You've got the uncertainty of a transition. Anytime a monarch has ruled for 52 years, there is instability in the land. I mean, we feel it every four or eight years in a presidential election, and my goodness, have we felt that recently, right? there? Whenever there is a transition of power, people get a little jumpy. There's a question of, will, will we be vulnerable? 
I mean, you have to realize, too, King Uzziah had been a very successful king. It, uh, Judah had expanded its borders. It had conquered its enemies. It was wealthier than it had been at the beginning of Uzziah's reign. So poll numbers are up. GDP is up. Uh, military spending is up. The stock market is up. And now this distinguished king of half a century is gone. So uncertainty. What will happen to Judah? What will happen to the nation? Will, are the best days behind us? That's one question. But you also have the background of Uzziah's failure at the end of his life. What will come now? What kind of king will we know? Who's really in charge? So in that context, let's just maybe draw some parallels. Instability, uncertainty, volatility, fear, worry. Isaiah, by the grace of God, is given a vision. It's as if God says, in all of this, all of these circumstances swirling around you right now, what you most need is this, this particular vision of who God is. So you might think, well, this is a very different context, but I just want to suggest to you, maybe it is that for the people of God in every generation, including in our own time, we need more than anything else a vision of the holiness of God. For all the, all the circumstances out there beyond our control, what we most need is to see God clearly. So in the year that King Uzziah died, what did Isaiah see? He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Watch the throne. Sitting on the throne. We see the Lord sitting on a throne. Now I think it's interesting that Isaiah here says that the Lord is sitting. I wouldn't want to make too much of this, but it is not a, it's not a throwaway reference. This King of kings and Lord of lords is not pacing about nervously. He is not standing. He is not unsure. He is seated and he is ruling without debate, without contender, without rival. He is seated on a throne. And not only that, he is high and lifted up the text says. So in other words, kind of like my little anecdote about standing with my feet on the ground in Denver, Colorado and seeing the Rocky Mountains, Isaiah says, when he looks at this throne, it is not at eye level. No, no, no. Isaiah has no illusion here that he's looking at a peer. This is a picture of regal majesty, elevated, the king who sits above everyone else. And this denotes his authority and his rule and his power and his majesty high and lifted up. And not only that, what else does he see? The train of his robe filled the temple. Now this may be the least familiar language to us. We're not accustomed to this. But if you are of a certain generation or age, you will remember another British royal family reference, uh, the marriage of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Now you can go Google it later, kids. Uh, it might as well be from the 19th century. Uh, but if you remember that day, Princess Diana had on this wedding gown that you can go read the details about it. It was an extraordinary event. And the train of her wedding gown alone reached to the back of West Westminster Abbey. I mean, just this, this, the gown in and of itself is impressive, but it's the train, right? All this fabric, it just yard upon yard upon yard that follows her. And why was that? 
I mean, you might say, well, everybody wanted to be Princess Diana, so for the next five years, every bride in the known world had, you know, a massive train. Well, not really. They, they emulated everything else they could about Diana Spencer. But that train was one of a kind. That was a bridal train made only for a princess. That was a, a train made to suggest to the whole world, to declare to the whole world, this is not someone like you or me. This is someone who is marrying into the royal family, and she will now become part of this family. And so she is no commoner. She is extraordinary. She may be one day the future queen of England. Obviously, Providence had other plans. The train, in other words, suggests something of just the grandeur and the majesty and the glory. And so as Isaiah describes this vision of, of this royal train, of the garment of the king, so to speak. He says it is so massive, so majestic, that it fills the temple. It's just, you can almost picture just fabric, layers of fabric filling the square footage of the whole temple. It cannot even be contained. It is a picture of glory and majesty. And it's unlike anything that we really know, honestly anything that we can conceive in our own imaginations. We live in a time where God is trivialized. And if you were to ask your neighbor, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if I were to ask you, when you think of God, what do you think of? That, by the way, is the most important question anyone can ever ask you. My hunch would be that most of us don't go to this vision of a majestic king who reigns and rules in power and glory. Our culture may tempt us to think of him as kind of a benevolent grandfather, maybe an all-wise sage. Maybe you think of him as just an angry deity. But Isaiah here gives us a different vision. He says, what you most notice when you're confronted with the one true and living God is his majesty, is his grandeur, and it's wondrous. Now, it doesn't stop there. He tells us as well that above him stood the seraphim. And we don't know a lot in the Bible about the seraphim. They're not referenced that commonly, but here they figure prominently. You have this picture of these angelic creatures, each of them with six wings. So if you can kind of picture this, they have six wings. With one set of wings, they cover their faces. With another set of wings, they cover their feet, and then the two presumably in the middle, the other pair of wings, those are the ones that serve to fly. Now, we don't know exactly why six wings, why three pairs of wings, why the feet, the face. It may be, it seems most obvious that they cover their faces because they cannot, even as created beings, they cannot behold the glory of God unencumbered. I mean, you have to let that sink in for a moment. These are sinless angels. They are not affected by what we know in Christian theology as the fall. They're without sin. But they're still creatures. They are not God. And so in the presence of, in the direct unmediated presence of God, yes, even these extraordinary angelic creatures have to shield their face when confronted with the glory of God. Their feet are covered. That kind of brings to mind Moses there on the backside of a Midianite mountain, when he doesn't even see the face of God, he hears God speaking through a bush, and God says, take off your sandals. <laughs> You're standing on holy ground. 
It may be something along those lines, but they have to cover their feet because they're in the presence of a holy and, God, and, and glorious God. And then they have these wings, presumably to do the bidding of this royal king. They are his messengers, and we'll see in just a moment exactly how that comes to pass for Isaiah. So you've got this picture, right, that Isaiah is painting for us of this king who is seated high and lifted up on his throne. The train of his temple is filling the whole, the train of his robe, I'm sorry, is filling the whole temple. And he is uh, surrounded by these seraphim. These, it seems to me, I think, to be a pair of seraphim, two of them on either side. And it's in the context of this figure of King Uzziah, right? Remember who had breached into the temple, disregarded the laws of God, who had really desecrated the place of the Lord. And Isaiah says, you know, you've got to see this place for what it really is. You have to see God for who He really is. Not only does he see this, now sound starts to happen. So there's visual, now we're going to have an audible event. And the first thing he hears, look at that in verse 3, is this chorus from one seraphim to the other, what's sometimes called an antiphonal chorus. One calls to the other, and what do they say? Let me just, before, you're so familiar with this, I suspect. Before I go any further, my hunch would be, if you could guess what is the song or the refrain that characterizes heaven? What would it be? Now, you've read it, so you know. Just suspend what you know for a moment. I, I fear that for far too many Christians, we would say, well, the, the thing that we would be singing is the love of God. And, and there is truth. It's certainly, the love of God is extraordinary and wondrous and worthy of all praise. God is love, after all. You might think, we, well, we would sing about His justice, we want a God of justice and righteousness, don't we? A God who will set all wrongs to right. And our culture is longing for justice, and it struggles to know how to define justice. So maybe that's the song of heaven. Maybe that's the first refrain. Maybe it's whatever else you're thinking of. I don't know what you're thinking of when you think of the attributes of God. But notice what Isaiah tells us here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is the first refrain of the song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. That is to say, the song of heaven, the things that even angels, the quality of God, the attribute of God of which even the angels themselves sing praise to the one true and living God is His holiness. And again, this is familiar, I suspect, to you, to many of you. But let me just pause here for a moment. Why the tripartite repetition? Why this threefold repetition of holy? Some of you may know this, in fact. In the Hebrew, the original language in which this was written, there were no exclamation marks. There, to, to denote superlatives, the way that one did that was through repetition. So if I was to say that you are happy, well, you're happy. If you're very happy, you're happy, happy. If you're infinitely, exceedingly happy, I guess it's happy, happy, happy. That's a really trivial way to maybe draw the parallel, but you get the point. This is holiness beyond what anyone can comprehend. It is holy, holy, holy. Now, when we speak of the holiness of God, what are we speaking of? Now, you get a sense of it here in this angelic chorus. It's tied to this, this assertion that the glory of God 
fills the earth. It, it clearly is echoing this visual of the train of the temple, or the train of the robe filling the temple, in the same way in which God's, this, this picture of a, of a robe fills the temple. The angels, the seraphim are saying, in so much more, his glory fills the whole earth. So his glory and his holiness are connected here in this refrain. What are we speaking of when in the scriptures we, the scriptures speak of his holiness? Now, my hunch is, if I were to ask you that, many of you would say, well, that's his, his moral purity. And it certainly is. That is one part, one dimension of what it means for God to be holy. He is without sin. He is absolutely pure and holy and without blemish. And because of that, he cannot be in the presence of sin. But it is not only his moral purity. It is also his, what we might say, his transcendence, his otherness, his set-apartness. He is not a creature. He is not like you and me. And so when this, when this angelic choir declares, holy, 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 it is an assertion of his absolute perfection, of his purity, of his righteousness, of all those characteristics, and it is also an assertion of he is other. He is entirely other. He is set apart from all that he has made. The creator is different from the creation. And candidly, brothers and sisters, this is so often lost in our time, isn't it? This vision of a holy God. We, the creatures, seek to bring him down to our level. And we would ascribe to God all sorts of things that are not true of him. Let me just give you one maybe practical application. If God really is infinitely holy, that means He is trustworthy. So you might be tempted to think this morning, I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what baggage you're bringing in here on a morning like this. Some of you come in with burdens that nobody in this room knows about. Some of you have had very challenging weeks. Some of you have had joyful weeks. But no matter what burden you're carrying, the holiness of God has immediate payoff, so to speak, for your Christian life. It is not some academic or theological category. It means that God can be trusted because He's holy. Do you realize the holiness of God is the attribute of God from which all others derive? Why is God loving? God is loving because He's holy. Why is God a God of justice? It's because He's holy. Why is God faithful and true to His promises? It's because He's holy. Why is God merciful and compassionate toward all He's made? It's because He's holy. Why is the Lord long-suffering toward you and toward me and tender-hearted? It's because He's holy. So no matter where you are this morning, no matter what God has called you to bear by His grace, His holiness has something to say to that. It's an extraordinary, fundamental reality of who He is. And as I said earlier, knowing who God is is the most important knowledge you could ever hope to have. John Calvin, the, the famous reformer of Geneva, you never know what people are going to say when you mention the name John Calvin or what you're going to think, but he's kind of a titanic figure in Christian history. He famously said that the knowledge of God is the primary knowledge. It's the fundamental knowledge that all other knowledge has to come subsequent to the knowledge of God, even knowing yourself rightly. We live in an age and in a culture that is self-obsessed. We might even say narcissistic. 
And the, the, the message that you get is you should know yourself. You know, navel-gazing maybe is one expression of it. And there are other far more obviously virtuous expressions of this, but, but the emphasis seems to be if you want to know yourself, discover what your truth is, discover kind of who you really are, what your identity is, well, you have to go through this process of self-discovery. But the Christian worldview comes along and the Word of God comes along and says, actually, no. <laughs> if you want to know who you really are, you first have to know who God really is. Because knowing God is the reality that transforms and defines all other realities. And that's exactly what we see here as the story now shifts. We've seen this vision of God, this confrontation of a holy, holy, holy God. Who the whole earth is full of His glory. He is high and lifted up. He is reigning and ruling in majesty and power. And now it shifts. There's a problem. Look at beginning in verse 4. Now, you might not think this is a problem yet. It says the, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Now, what this, I think, is describing, if you were to go to the temple, you'd see these two pillars and columns just on the front of the temple. And I think what Isaiah has in mind here is that the very architecture, so to speak, of the temple seems to be shaking. And it's not insignificant. What is prompting this earthquake, so to speak, in the temple? It's not even God himself. It's the seraphim. So, I mean, even the seraphim who can't look at God directly, who are creatures themselves, they are so majestic that even at the chorus that they're singing, the temple starts to quake. And what else happens? The house is filled with smoke. Now, you may remember I told you about uh, King Uzziah's sin, right? This, this uh, unsanctioned burning of incense in the temple. So it may be that there's an allusion here at, at, at Uzziah's sin, right? The, the smoke of the incense, but there's no reference here to incense. It's just smoke is filling the temple and there is an earthquake going on because of this cacophony of praise that has erupted from the seraphim. And you might think, Isaiah says, and I just joined in. It's, it's worship time. So I started to sing with the seraphim, and, and the house was shaken, and the smoke was coming, and this is like, this, this is a, a, a church service like you and I have never experienced. You might think that Isaiah's heart would skip a beat, and the hair would stand up on the back of his neck, just with the thrill of being in the presence of the one true and living God, and singing praises to him with an angelic choir. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? But what's it tell us that Isaiah's response is very different from what I just suggested to you? He has a problem. Look at his response. Woe is me. Woe is me. Now, we don't speak that way, especially in southeastern Pennsylvania. We probably have other ways of describing pain and agony and suffering. Thankfully, we can say that Cowboys fans are more familiar with that pain and agony now than we are. Uh, it's been a long time since they had a Lombardi trophy. I had to, sorry. This is far more uh, agonizing than anything like that, though, of course. But what is Isaiah saying here? This woe is me declaration. This is uh, basically a, a polite way of saying, I'm dead. It's over. I'm undone. 
the, the closest picture I can give you is there's an anecdote in, in the Gospel of Luke. You may remember this. When Jesus goes fishing with the disciples, remember they haven't caught anything. Jesus says, well, throw the nets on the other side. And they haul in this, this massive catch of fish, so large that the nets are splitting and breaking and they've got to get extra help to in an extra boat. I mean, it's just this extraordinary catch. And in another situation there, you may remember, this is in Luke 5, verse 8. Peter falls down before Jesus and says, get away from me. <laughs> I, I, you know, there's this, it's almost like, woe is me. In fact, let me read to you what Peter says. Here's how he puts it uh, in Luke chapter 5. They came, they filled the boat so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man Oh Lord. It's the same realization. When confronted with a holy God, we are destroyed. <laughs> We're undone. In the same way that Peter is aware of the power of Jesus Christ to reign and to rule over the creation, so much so that Jesus can control fish and calm storms and raise the dead and cast out demons. When you are confronted with a holy God, you don't join in the, in the choir, you're dead. This is why, by the way, throughout the Scriptures, when angels show up, you know, the messengers of God, what's the first thing they have to say? Don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. And they're not even God. They're just His messengers. So when you are in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, you're destroyed. No one can stand to see the face of God. No, no, there can be no sin in the presence of God. And that is exactly the point here of Isaiah's declaration. Why is he in, under woe? For I'm lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh. So he knows, I can't live. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen God. I have had a theophany. I have stood in the presence of the holy God of Israel. So I'm done. It's over for Isaiah. And he's not wrong. Our temptation might be to rush in and say, well, Isaiah, don't overreact. I mean, don't you know? I mean, God talks a lot about holiness and righteousness, but, but at the end of the day, He'll cut you a deal. Well, Isaiah knows better than that. He knows that this is the holy God of Israel, the, the Lord of hosts. And look at his self-awareness here. I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I find it fascinating that of all the conviction that Isaiah could articulate, it's the way he talks that convicts him. I, 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 I am sure if we had a list of Isaiah's sin, there would be more grievous sins than his speech. But it tells you and I something that in the presence of the holiness of God, yes, even those seemingly excusable little sins, the sins of the mouth, those little half-truths, that little bit of slander or gossip, that little bit of coarse or rude jesting, as the Scriptures puts it. The things that you and I, even as Christians sometimes, might be tempted to go, 
I mean, I know it's sin, but it's not like that sin. Isaiah here is saying, this is the one that's going to kill me. (laughs) I don't even have to get to the really ugly stuff. This is enough. And brothers and sisters, we live in an age, and the church of Jesus Christ is marked by a complete misunderstanding of the depth of sin. We are so quick to see everyone else's sin and to be blind to our own. We're so quick to rationalize little things. Well, I'm not angry. I'm just courageous. I want to stand up for truth so I can therefore excuse my outbursts of anger. I can excuse gossip because, no, what we're really doing is we're, we're exercising, and this can happen in a church, by the way. We're, we're not gossiping. We're caring for one another by sharing. They're just not here to hear it. <laughs> I'm sharing prayer requests it's really gossip. How easily our sin gets rationalized. So I just think it's extraordinary that this is the sin that devastates Isaiah. And look at what he says, too. It's not just his own unclean lips. It's he is part of a nation of filthy speech talkers. People with dirty mouths, as we might say it. Now, I don't think, by the way, this is to you know, give you a sermon on like, Well, what are the good words and the bad words? That's not the point. The point is, even those little sins, they so plague Isaiah and they so compromise his his standing before God, and so do they for the whole nation of Judah. Now, there's something here to be said too, right? Isaiah understands himself as an individual judged before a righteous God, but he also understands himself to be part of a people. And my goodness, there's some biblical theology going on here. There are two pitfalls here, I think, when we think about, about our relation to God in this, in this way. One is a hyper-individualism where we just say, it's just me. It's just me and God, just me and Jesus. And what everybody else is involved with, whatever else is going on out there, I mean, it's interesting, but it has no direct bearing on me and my relationship with God. That is not biblical Christianity. From Genesis to Revelation, you read it, it is a God creating and forming a people for himself. It is marked by individuals, and every one of us as individuals, we will give an individual account before the Lord at his judgment, absolutely. Salvation is individual. You cannot get into heaven. You cannot be saved by virtue of somebody else's faith. No, you must have faith and repent and believe. It is individual, yes, but when you are redeemed, you are redeemed into a people. And there is another pitfall here to say, well, no, no, it's individualism. That's just kind of a Western Christian kind of post-enlightenment thing. We, we have to recover the corporate. Well, sure, yeah, but you've got to hold on to the individual. And Isaiah here has both. And by the way, this is exactly the dynamic in a local church, in a healthy church. You matter as an individual, as an individual member of Christ Church Westchester, but your future joy in the Lord, your hope for eternity, your growth in godliness, it is bound up with one another. That is the whole language of covenanting together. This is not a social club or a fraternity or sorority. You are a family covenanted together, and your fate is bound up in one another's in in a very real sense, even as you stand as individuals before a holy God. So Isaiah sees this. He sees his own sin. He sees the sin of his people, and he is undone. He's destroyed. Let me draw one other application of this, by the way. 
what is it that, con- that, that just convicts Isaiah so of his sin? Obviously, it is this confrontation with God. One application for this, for you and for me, I think, is the recognition and the reminder of the standard of holiness. Against what standard will you measure yourself? Here, it's very clear, the standard by which we are to measure ourselves is God Himself. So when, when, when I measure my obedience, my righteousness, my morality, if you want to use that term, if I, if I measure myself against God, I'm done. Every time I fall short, I'm a creature, I'm, I'm frail, I'm limited, and I'm not just a creature, I'm a fallen creature, I'm, I'm a sinner. You know, Jesus talked about this in a parable in Luke 18. I won't get into that. That's a whole other sermon. But you may remember the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And, and, and it's so important. In that story that Jesus tells, these two men both go to the temple, ironically, they're same location, in the temple to pray. And the tax collector is off in a corner. We'll get to him in a moment. But the Pharisee, this upstanding citizen, stands in the middle of the temple screaming out his prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, God, that I am not like, and then he has a whole list of degenerates, so to speak, uh, of, of people who, I'm not like that person. And he says, and I actually tithe, and I fast, and I do all these good things. It's a great performance of self-righteousness. And out, from an outward perspective, you would have looked at this Pharisee and thought, well, he's a really moral person. He's a really virtuous person. He's a really great person. Seems to be very obedient. She says, but in the corner, and he won't even look up. So again, the high and lifted up thing kind of comes into your memory there. The, the tax collectors in the corner won't even lift up his eyes, and he's beating his chest, and all he can get out is, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Jesus ends the story and he says, I'll tell you, the tax collector is the one who went home that day justified. And in that parable in Luke 18, you can almost hear the gasp in the crowd. That guy? The tax collector? Not the Pharisee? What's the point of that? It's exactly what devastates Isaiah here. If you measure yourself against other human beings, you'll always find somebody who makes you feel better about yourself. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm a sinner, sure, but I'm not like her. I mean, I may struggle with this or whatever, and, and whatever your this is, but I'm not, I, don't, I don't do the stuff that he does. Or I'm not, I mean, especially look at those non-Christians. Look at how they live. Oh, my goodness. I, I've, you know, kind of cleaned my life up. Listen, friend, if, if that's your hope or your identity, you may not know the Lord because the gospel comes in and says, no. The gospel of grace says you are that tax collector in the corner. You are Isaiah. You are the one who says, I am the chief among sinners. (laughs) And my sin deserves God's judgment no less than her sin or his sin. And if your standard for righteousness is yourself or other people, you are on a scary road. The only adequate standard of righteousness and holiness is the one true and living God himself. Now, what do you do with that? Isaiah's devastated. And if the story stopped here, you almost would expect to hear, we, you know, we haven't heard God speak. We've heard the seraphim speak. We might expect that somebody's going to come along now and say, yep, 
Isaiah, you're right. Game over. No new lives. You know, there's no reset game here. It's over for you, and so say your goodbyes. Because that is what he deserves. Isaiah, you have to understand, he's not wrong in his self-assessment. So what happens? Well, this is the problem. I mean, this is the solution, and it's the solution of, of God's grace. Verse 6, look at what it says, and we'll, I'll be in my seat in just a moment. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, taking in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is an anticipation of the gospel. This is an anticipation of those famous but God texts. Isaiah is dead in his sins and trespasses. He has no hope in himself but God. One of the seraphim, one of the angelic messengers of the, God, of the, of the one true and living God, flies toward him. That is to say, God takes the initiative. Isaiah isn't asking for this. Isaiah doesn't devise a plan for it. This is entirely a unilateral act of mercy from God towards Isaiah. He sends this angelic messenger with a coal, a burning coal, taken from tongs from the altar, taken from the place of sacrifice, taken from the place of atonement. And he brings this coal, this searing hot coal. It sounds painful. He touches it to his lips. And he doesn't just do that and then kind of fly away and it's over. No, he gives him an interpretation. Here's what just happened, Isaiah. This has touched your lips. Behold, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. That whole pronouncement is loaded with wonderful truth, gospel truth. Guilt removed. Why is guilt removed? Because your sin's atoned for. Sin's atoned for why? Because guilt's removed. They both go together. It's one thing to say, hey, guess what? We're just going to pretend this never happened. Guilt gone. Well, God's a God of justice. He can't do that. He's a God of justice. So just as importantly, it says sin atoned for, paid for, covered. And if we, if we were doing another message, we won't. Well, I won't do this now. You'll see if you re keep reading the text. This is what establishes Isaiah to go as a messenger for God himself. It is this atoning work of grace that touches Isaiah's lips and presumably his heart that, it, that enables him to be sent out as a messenger for God to God's people. Now, I just want to say this briefly to you. This is a picture, I think, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this atoning work done to purify and save an ancient prophet points us to the place of the skull, Golgotha, where they nailed him on a tree with a thief on either side. This is anticipating what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who was crushed by the Lord, who bore our sin and took it away and offered atonement for us. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing you need to hear because you can know that God is holy rationally, cognitively. You can even understand maybe that you yourself are a sinner and that you've broken His ways and His, and His commandments. But this is the solution. Not 
self-righteousness, not moralistic performance, not good ethics. The solution is an atoning sacrifice offered up for you and for me. It's a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And it offers complete atonement, complete salvation, complete forgiveness and eternal life for all who trust in Him. I want to end with this. This is not the only place we find a throne. If I had time, I'd take you to Revelation chapter 4. Just mark it in your notes. Maybe on the margin there. You can do this in your Bible. It's allowed. Just write you know, on the margin, Revelation 4. So, you know, Isaiah 6, see Revelation 4. But what happens there? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus is still on the throne. John is given a vision there in, in Revelation chapter 4 of one who is seated on a throne, reigning and ruling right now, and the parallels are not coincidental. I'm going I'm to do this and then I'll end. He has this extraordinary vision of the, of the throne of heaven. He's in the Spirit. And listen to this. At once... I was in the Spirit, and behold, John writes, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Sound familiar? And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Sound familiar? And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each, living, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. He is still on the throne. And the vision that Isaiah had all those millennia ago almost pales in comparison to what John gives us here. It's fleshed out. It is now the incarnate Christ reigning over the universe, but the song hasn't changed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess with that angelic choir, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the only reason, Heavenly Father, that we are able to articulate that not only with our mouths but with our hearts is because you, the holy God of Israel, the one true and living God, you have intervened in our lives by your grace and transformed us by your gospel. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ the reality of His finished work at the cross, of His bodily resurrection, His ascension to Your right hand, and that He is right now seated at His throne. So, Lord, would You take what we've heard and studied this morning, apply it to our hearts, tune our hearts to see the world around us as it really is, to see ourselves as it really is, and to walk by faith, hoping in the return of our great King. 
We ask all this in his name. Amen.